So many people spend their lives working towards the goal of retirement, a period where they can enjoy the fruits of their several decades of labors and enjoy themselves. But what we don't realize is that the best years to come are even beyond that. Welcome to A Walk in the Word, where we bring you the Sunday sermons from Providence Baptist Church Gaston's Worship Services. In this week's sermon, Pastor John Friedrich reminds us that for those who put their faith in Christ, the future couldn't be brighter. Let's join in as Pastor Friedrich preaches a message entitled, The Future's So Bright, from Romans chapter 8. All right, it's good to be in the Lord's house this morning as we gather around His Word and see what He has to say to us. So as I said, we're going to be in Romans 8 this morning, and we will read verses 23 through 30. 23 through 30. So follow along with me as we read. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for it? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is, what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, then He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified, and whom He justified, them He also glorified. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity to gather around your word this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to come to your house on a day where we can just lift your name up in praise and worship. It is truly a privilege and an honor to praise you. And you are truly so worthy of all of our uh, praise and worship. Lord, we thank you for uh, those that are here today. We just ask that you help us now as we begin to step into your word to help us let our hearts and our minds be open and prepared for that which you want us to take away from this sermon today, Lord. And Lord, I know I'm not worthy to stand here before these folks. I know uh, there are many more qualified, but just take me and use me as your instrument. Take away anything that could in any way interfere with the message. Pride, selfishness, distraction. Lord, just have your will and way in the, in the message today. Take me, empty me, fill me with your spirit, Lord, that I might only say the words that you want me to say. And Lord, as a church, help us to continue to, to strive forward, to continue to do your will and to fulfill your purpose for the kingdom, that we might always be outwardly focused, being your hands and feet in this community, being your, showing your love and your peace that only you can give in this crazy, lost and dying world that we live in. And Lord, let us not ever become inwardly focused and self-serving. Lord, also as individuals, help us to always see opportunities to share your gospel, to share your truth with those around us as the time draws to a close, Lord. And help us to always be focused on exalting you and glorifying you in everything that we do and say. And Lord, forgive us of the times that we've sinned against you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, where I work uh, in my secular job... Um, the timing of when the local plant was built and everything has a lot of people that are retiring right now. 
There's a lot of folks that have been there since the very beginning or, or shortly after the very beginning who are coming into a time period where they're closing out on their careers and they're, they're moving on. And occasionally I'll run into one of these folks that I've worked for many years. I've been there almost 25 years myself. And I will occasionally run into one of them or maybe they'll come by and visit at the plant or something. And I ask them, so how's retirement? And uh, uh, the, uh, the answers are pretty much very consistent uh, that it's everything that they thought it would be. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I find myself wondering what it would be like when that day comes for me. And I'm still, uh, you know, about seven and a half years off and, and uh, it's still a, a ways away. But I find myself, you know, what will I do? What will I spend my time doing that during that period of, of my life? And uh, what, how much will I be able to enjoy it and not having to come into work five days a week and uh, all the other things that come along with not being under somebody else's schedule other than my wife's. <clears throat> anyway, but then something else started to creep into my thoughts. Not enough to really dampen the anticipation, mind you, but certainly enough to give me pause. A detachment from the working world marks a significant milestone in a person's life. And it's one that indicates a transition into a period, if we're honest, is the most significant event next would be our departure from this world, more than likely. Uh, it's a moment when you leave corporate America behind and you coast for however long, albeit happily for the most part, toward the ultimate separation from earthly society. For those who have worked their entire adult life, it is a significant transition. Now, before I go on, I want to kind of lay down a disclaimer of sorts here. I'm not in any way implying that retirement applies to my calling as a minister, okay? As a preacher, there is no, until I am physically incapable of doing it anymore, uh, there's no retirement from this calling. I'm referring to a retirement from my secular work, okay? And God expects me to labor from Him as long as I possibly can. But this really got me to thinking. As my mind followed what this possible timeline for my life beyond where I am now would be, and God led me to this passage uh, that we're talking about this morning. Now I realized that the, the best part of my life, the part that I could really, really look forward to, look, laid actually beyond what most people would call the end. The part that I could rejoice about, the part that I could just get ex more excited about than any other, was actually beyond what most people would think would be considered the end of their life. Whereas many would desperately try to hold on to every moment in their latter years, struggling to, to make it last as long as possible, anxiously, maybe even fearfully, awaiting the day that they know that their time in this world comes to a halt, those who know Jesus Christ can get excited about that day. Those who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior can look at that day and say, it can only get better. Now, I was reading a book at one point about uh, or where the author was attempting to reconcile accounts of near-death experiences and try to line them up with biblical truth. And while reading a sample of that, I read one simple sentence that literally made me kind of want to shout out. I'm not going to get into uh, you know uh, near-death experiences and people going to heaven. I'm not going to talk about that today. That's a whole other topic, actually, for another sermon. And while not necessarily validating 
the legitimacy of any particular near-death experience, this lady indicated that she has sublime, heard sublimely beautiful and exquisitely harmonious music that transitioned into songs of praise for God. Now, the words got my mind to going and kind of brought me to a place where I imagined what the sounds of heaven might be like. Where the sounds of heaven harmoniously all but all people perhaps sing a different song, but at the same time it comes together as one. And my heart just swelled with anticipation thinking about that. So let us all be excited about what awaits us in the life to come. And when we examine the scriptures, we can find out a great peace in knowing that for those who have genuinely put their faith in Christ, the hope of an eternity in heaven is a guarantee. I like that. There was a, a Cajun cook or something sometime back on TV that used to say guarantee. Okay? And with my in-laws, Louisiana background, I think that's appropriate to say that. It's a guarantee. But while we cling to the promise of being sealed into the day of redemption, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the understanding that both God the Father and God the Son hold us securely in their hands, we are always keenly aware of something that occurs during that time, and that is the judgment that awaits each and every one of us. And you know, sometimes when we think about that, that can kind of cast a little bit of a doubt. That can cast a bit of anticipation or anxiety in thinking about that day when we are judged. So what I want to do today is I want to look at three key elements. Three key elements that when we look and consider that point in time in our transition from this life into the life beyond, it will bring us comfort and confidence in the work of Jesus Christ Himself. Now I want to be very clear about something before I go any further. In the book of Romans, Paul was writing to the Christians in Rome. That was his audience. These words of Paul were being written to Christians. Okay, so the, the words that are being written here are directed to those who believed. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, these words presently don't apply to you. But they need to be considered, and considered seriously. But it's my hope this morning that when you hear God speak to you through these words, that you'll feel His love and His grace that He is extending to you too. That you, before the end of the day, might be a partaker of the very thing that Paul was addressing the Christians and Romans about. Now let's go ahead and jump in. The first thing that we need to consider here, the first thing that we should just latch onto and get so excited about is the security of righteous judgment. Now when I say this statement, it might strike people as a little odd to say, oh, you're saying we should be happy, excited about righteous judgment? Now, given the Bible is very, very clear that that is none righteous, no, not one, as Romans 3.10 tells us. So, why would we get excited? Why should we be looking forward to righteous judgment? How then could it be that we find security, even comfort, in the coming judgment, knowing full well that we can't find ourselves righteous in the eyes of God, in and of ourselves? And the obvious answer to that is because it's not our righteousness, or lack thereof, that God will see. Instead, what God will see in us 
is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. He will look upon us and see us clothed in the righteousness that Jesus has imputed to us rather than our own failures and shortcomings that make us in no way righteous in God's eyes. I mean, think about it. If we know that God's judgment will be absolute and righteous, we know that there is no way that we could ever be found acceptable by our own means. Because of this, those who have put their trust in Christ can rest in the knowledge and the, the comfort of knowing that we'll be judged based on our trust in Jesus Christ on the cross and not of our own works. I mean, can you imagine struggling your whole life saying, I hope I measure up, I hope I measure up, I hope I measure up, and never really knowing? Not knowing what the goal line is, not knowing what the threshold is, not knowing what you need to do to become acceptable to God? Not recognizing the Bible says that you can't be acceptable to God no matter how hard you try, no matter how much good you do. In your own right, you cannot become acceptable to God. If we truly believe that God's judgment will be pure and righteous, we can't realistically think that we'll be found acceptable by our own works. When we base our eternal destiny on the value of works, then our hope, our confidence, our focus ultimately is what? It becomes on ourself. We put our hope, our faith, our trust. We say, I hope that I am good enough. I hope that I have done enough. I hope that me, 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 me. All of a sudden it becomes inwardly focused. We are betting our, our, our eternal destiny on somebody we know is sinful and flawed. But you see, God judges us based on the work of Christ on the cross. And we can find peace, security, and hope in the righteous, secure, or the righteous judgment of God. Philippians 3.9 tells us, And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but of that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. See, the problem is when we run into, when we begin to think that somehow we are able to satisfy the judgment, a righteous judgment of God by working our way into His favor, we're shooting for an unattainable goal. We're shooting for a target that we can't hit. So many people believe that they can measure up today. But they'll be revealed in the day of judgment to their demise that they have missed the target. But here's the thing. The Greek word used in Paul's letter to the Romans for sin literally means to miss the mark. The word translated from the Greek to the English as sin literally means to miss the mark. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In other words, for all have missed the mark. Everybody. Now the word Paul uses here is an archery term as if to stress that no matter how hard we try, no matter how carefully we aim, we will still miss. To use a variation, I know we have several basketball fans in here today, and to use a, a phrase from that, instead of he shoots, he scores, it's he shoots and he misses. So then... How do we know when the God's standards are unattainable for us? 
We know this because the standard by which we are measured is the law. Now let's be clear, nobody follows the law well, let alone perfectly. I mean, think about it. When is the last time, and I don't want, don't speak out loud, don't give me your answers, but when was the last time you sinned? Today? An hour ago? Five minutes ago? I mean, we all miss it horribly. And these are God's laws. Have we kept every single one of them every single day of our life? Honestly, none of us can say that we have. But Jesus Christ has. Then because of that, we would stand before Him unrighteous and unworthy to enter the kingdom of God, condemned instead of to eternity of suffering and misery. But when we know this, this is a standard and that Jesus is the perfect, sinless Son of God and the standard bearer for what constitutes righteous in God's eyes, and we couple that with the reality that His judge, God's judgment has already been poured out on Him for those who believe exclusive of anything of our own doing, that gives us a tremendous amount of security in our future. We recognize and realize that the righteous judgment of God is good. <clears throat> and that as a result of that, Jesus has stepped in. Has stepped in to pay the price that you and I need to pay. He's lived the life that you and I can't live. He's died the death that you and I deserve to die. And willingly taking on your sins and God's wrath. The second thing we can take away from this and rejoice in is the promise of mercy. Now, this is more obvious of all the different hopes we place our faith, or we have when we place our faith in Christ. The Bible says very clearly the wages sin are death. Okay, that means one sin and it carries the full punishment. Equivalent to death, both in a physical sense and a spiritual sense. Let's face it, every single one of us is going to die at some point. There's no getting around that. But for those who don't believe, there's a second death. There's a spiritual death. And the Bible says that even one sin carries that punishment. Just one. But think about how many times we've sinned according across the, the time of our we've been on this earth. Each time we pile the sentence of death more and more upon ourselves. But we can be spared by the righteous judge. We are spared the punishment that we so richly deserve. But let's take a deeper look at it because it gets even better. It goes even deeper than that. In the book of Matthew, chapter 18, we read the parable of the two debtors. Remember that story? You had a, a gentleman who owed an insurmountable amount of money. He could not pay back. There would have been no way he could pay back, no matter how hard he tried, no matter how long he worked. And the rich man, the ruler, forgave him of his debt. He goes back, and one of his co-workers or whatever, somebody he knew, owed him some money. That person comes in and says, I can't pay it back. So the guy says, well, then you're going you're gonna to go to prison because there was debtor's prison back then. So he wouldn't forgive a smaller debt after he had been forgiven an insurmountable debt. And that was the story that Jesus shared. 
And the basic point of that parable is to teach us to be forgiving to others because we have been forgiven of a debt that we could not ever repay. That's what Jesus has done for us. He has paid a debt that you have no chance of ever paying. The reason I bring this up is because the unforgiving debtor in the parable, the one who was meant to represent someone who was who's been forgiven of God, owed a debt that would have been impossible to pay. That is each and every one of us. Our sin debt, the full measure of the sentence that our sins carry, is more than we could ever begin to even chip away at. And yet God, <laughs> God is so good. And yet God, in an amazing act of mercy, when we embrace the forgiveness that he offers, wipes all that away. Gone. Just like that. He acts, and it's easy, it goes even better than that. It's not that he just wipes it away. He acts as if it never existed. As far as the east is from the west. An insurmountable debt. Gone. Not to be brought up at another late date. When you disappoint him again, he says, well, by the way, you remember when? No, God doesn't work like that. When he wipes it away, it's gone. He doesn't bring it back up. And it happens over and over again when we seek forgiveness. God grants us the mercy that brings us our salvation. But it is there every day. Every day for us. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are what? New every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. They are new. His mercies are new every single day. He stands ready to forgive every single day. But it gets even better than that. But with the forgiveness of sin debt, mercy shown to those who cannot repay, comes an abundance of blessing. So not only does your sentence get forgiven, but God places us in a position of blessing. Philippians 4.19 But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He has promised not only to forgive our sins when we turn to Him and seek forgiveness, but He would provide for our needs. Now, don't be deceived by some of these preachers out there that want to twist and, and take this completely out of context. He's not saying if you desire a $100,000 vehicle to drive around that He is going to give it to you. That is not what this is saying. We need to understand clearly the difference between our needs and our desires. God has promised to provide our needs. And Romans 8.28, as we read earlier, tells us that He works all things to our good. Now I understand as we go through life, there are periods that don't feel like things are good. There are periods of our life where we struggle. There are periods of our life that are difficult. But God says, you know what? Even those times when you hurt, even those times when you struggle, even those times where you feel so down that all you can do is cry out to Him, He says, those are for your good. We don't know what all He's working in our lives. We don't know what all He's got working around us. But He has given us that promise through Paul's letter to the church in Rome that this is for your good. 
all things work for our good. We may not see it that way because we want everything to be roses and wonderful and, and painless. But rest assured, God said it's for your good. Kind of like when a parent disciplines their child. I guarantee you that kid's not saying, oh, this is for my good. I'm happy about this. But rest assured it is. So please don't miss this. The scales are not simply balanced, but instead they swing suddenly in our favor. Through His infinite mercy, we go from being called enemies of God to becoming His children. What a transition, folks. I mean, think about a few weeks back when I preached about how radical that concept is. How we can go from one extreme to the other, to, from being enemies to being His children. To be adopted into the very family of God. A friend, a joint heir, the Bible says, an adopted child, the list goes on and on. We who ignored him, rebelled against him, committed crime after crime against him, even hated him, are granted a full pardon and are welcomed into his family and given a seat at the table. At a time when we stand before the judgment of God, when we should be sent hastily off into the midst of eternal punishment and suffering, instead, those who called upon the name of Jesus Christ will be welcomed into everlasting joy and fellowship with our Lord and Savior. Can you imagine? I just want you to picture this in your mind for a second here. Imagine standing in the very presence of Jesus Christ Himself. Not a statue, not a picture, but the Lord Himself. And such that we are just being basked in His glory. That we feel the love just emanating from Him. Can you imagine that? That is what awaits all who believe. Experiencing face to face the love of a Creator. A love that this world can't even possibly fathom. You and I talk about love all we want, but we'll never understand the full concept of love until we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and fully embrace and take in what He did for us. Can you even imagine the depths of His mercy that would allow such a thing to happen? To go from being His enemy and wretched sinners to standing in His presence and fellowshipping, fellowshipping with Him for all eternity. The third thing I want us to take away and place our hope in is our hope of justification. Now what exactly does that mean to be justified? We use that word a lot. We toss it around a lot. We read about it in Scripture. But what exactly does that word mean? That word justification is the action of declaring or making righteous in the sight of God. So when we are justified, God is saying, I'm making you righteous in my sight. We can't do it, obviously. Now when I say the hope of justification, I want to be very clear here. And I've talked about this before. The word hope in the Bible, the, when it's talking about all of this, it is the Greek word elpis. And that is not a hope like 
I hope my team wins the Super Bowl tonight. That is not that kind of hope. It is a hope based on a guarantee, an assurance of, it's a forward-looking anticipation. It's looking forward to something that you've been promised. From a biblical perspective, it is that we anxiously await the realization of something that we know will happen. We haven't seen it happen yet, but we know it will. So when we talk about the hope of justification, we speak of that which will most assuredly take place. But I also need to be clear about something else. When we experience the new birth that occurs during the salvation experience, we are declared righteous before God. But the final realization of this doesn't actually occur until we stand in judgment before God. We're declared righteous, but it doesn't come total fruition until we're standing before Him in judgment. And God says, I'm calling you righteous because of my Son. See, whatever, as we travel through whatever days God sees fit to grant us beyond our rebirth, there are going to be times where we struggle to feel the reality of this. But make no mistake about it, about it, when that day comes, we will experience the completeness of God's justification. But in the meantime, in this life, we experience the benefits of this as well. Romans 5.1 Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to differentiate something here. That Paul doesn't mean our life is always going to be peaceful. We live in a fallen world. That is simply not going to happen. We live in a world of sin and conflict and chaos. So our lives, as long as we remain in this world, will never be completely peaceful. What it does mean is that we're at peace with God. That is the peace that it gives us. Jesus even said himself that this world's going to give you trouble. And I don't think he, any of us can say without question we haven't felt that at one time or another. The Christian life is not one of ease and smooth sailing. In fact, quite the contrary. So what it does mean is just as Paul worded it, we have peace with God. The war is over. We are no longer enemies of God. We are His family member. I remember at the end of Desert Storm as we were preparing, the ceasefire had been declared and uh, we were being prepared to, to fly back to the States. And we were in Bahrain at the time. And people were literally driving down the streets, honking their horns you know, with Kuwaiti flags and hollering and, and just celebrating because the war was over. They were celebrating a peace after having been in conflict. Now granted, it was a short conflict, but they had been in conflict. And now they were relieved that that war was over. They were no longer in a, in a position where they were at war with somebody. That's how it is when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We recognize we are no longer at war with God. We are at peace with Him. We no longer have to worry about being in conflict with Him. We are at peace and welcomed into His presence. And one of the greatest benefits that comes from what Paul was talking about here is that we have no reason to fear the coming judgment of God. Not because we don't deserve His wrath, mind you. Now it's important to understand that we don't ever lose sight of that. That we are always deserving of judgment. 
We are always deserving of the wrath of God, but we don't need to fear the judgment of God. Because as Paul said, we have been justified by faith through the work of Jesus Christ. We have been declared righteous, the Bible says. God goes from being a feared judge to a loving father. And I love the words that Paul wrote immediately following verse 1 in Romans 5. He says, By whom also we have access by faith into His grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says, We rejoice at the hope of the glory of God. Once again, that's not a hope as the world sees it, but hope as the Bible defines it. And this is where it all comes together. You see, we were created for the glory of God. That is our purpose. To to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Yet even before our creation, God knew the incredible lengths that He would have to go to to redeem us. He knew that this creation that He was about to embark on was going to rebel. They were going to hate Him. Against the very one who gave gave Him life. God is glorified in our life and that we are wonderfully and fearfully made. An absolute miracle of creation and life sustenance. I mean, think about it. Think about in your body how everything has to work just so for us to stay alive. An incredibly complex mechanism, the most complex machine far beyond anything any man, anything mankind could have even dreamed up. And yet they want to tell us it happened by chance? I don't think so. Fearfully and wonderfully made. But he knew that this creation, this, this absolute miracle of creation that he had come up with was going to turn against him. He knew that before he even did it. Yet He created us. He created us to bring glory to Him despite us dishonoring Him in so many ways. But as I said, He knew this, so He took it at that point to the next level. He made not only His creation, but He made a way to redeem us that He would have even more glory as a result of it. He gets the glory for creating us, but then he also deserves, rightfully so, the glory of providing a means of redemption when we turned against him. Our God loves you so much that he sent his son to take the full wrath of God so that you might find forgiveness for what you did. He takes the wrath for what you did. And if that wasn't enough, He calls us and enables us to accept that promise of salvation. You see, we don't even seek it ourselves. Our natural instincts, our natural inclination is to run from God, not run to God. So what does He do? He takes it a step further. Not only did He create us, knowing that we would rebel, not only did He create a means for us to be redeemed in His eyes, but He also says, hey, you know what? You're not going to try to find that, so I'm going to draw you to it. I'm going to call you. I'm going to lay the Holy Spirit upon you that uh, He might draw you to me. 
that you might have that opportunity. He took it the whole way, folks. And when it happens, there's only one person that can receive glory for that amazing transformation. And that is God himself. But if you remember back at the beginning of the sermon, I made a point that Paul was writing this letter to the Christians in Rome. Those who had already experienced the grace of God. But what's amazing about the Bible being God's living word is that even though the original recipients of the letter that Paul wrote at the time were Christians, like the rest of the Bible, it's God's revelation of himself. It is God-inspired and thus has purpose well beyond the immediate intent of why it was written. God knew that he was going to have this included in a book that would have a profound impact on the world. A book that would become his word. So because of that letter, he was not just speaking. Paul was just not speaking to the Christians in Rome. God was speaking to the entire world through it. So if you're here today and you're hearing these words or you're at the sound of my voice, perhaps listening to this live stream or perhaps listening to it through podcast, understand something today. God is speaking to you. God is calling to you. God has created you. God has created a, a means of your salvation. And now God is calling you to that means of salvation. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. And there's no other way, no other name by which we can be saved but Jesus Christ himself. Why not Make a decision today that will change your eternal destiny and make that point in time when we leave this world a time to look forward to what's on the other side rather than dread what's on the other side. A chance to stand in the presence of your Creator. What's stopping you? Let's stand as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne this morning, we are grateful that we have had this time together, Lord. We are grateful for your word, and God, you just continue to have us stand in awe of your goodness. We recognize, Lord, that we in no way are deserving of any good thing that you have given us. And yet you continue to pour out your mercy, your grace, your love, your peace. So much that you offer us, so much that you give us. You are truly an awesome and mighty God and worthy of all praise and honor, Lord. We thank you for that, Lord. We just pray now that the words that we've heard today will impress upon us in such a way that we will live our lives accordingly, that we will live our lives with that, that hope of knowing what is yet to come beyond this world. As my prayer, Lord, that is, if anybody has heard these words today or any time that they hear this particular message, that they will grasp the reality of their need for a Savior. That they will fall on their face before you, crying out for forgiveness. 
calling upon the name, the only name by which they are saved, Jesus Christ. And Lord, just have your will and way in all our lives today. Let us live lives that are glorifying to you and bring honor to you and that exalt your kingdom and your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next time for another Walk in God's Word. Podcasts are available in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Audible, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, CastBox, Downcast, and Beyond Pod. Search for and subscribe to Providence Baptist Church Space Hyphen Space Gaston Sermons. Until next time, may God bless you as we await his joyful return. Hi, this is John Friedrich, pastor of Providence Baptist Church. It's my prayer that our time together has helped you grow in your walk with God, or maybe he's even used it to guide you to discover the wonderful gift of salvation. If you're ever in our area, we would love for you to come worship with us. Our address is Providence Baptist Church, 977 Metafield Road, Gaston, South Carolina, 29053. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through our website at www.providencembcgaston.com or email us at providencembcgaston at gmail.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us next time as we take a walk in the Word.